Welcome to Radio BX, the podcast of the Building Energy Exchange, where we discuss sustainability and energy efficiency in the built environment, a natural extension of our core mission to foster dialogue among the entire community that impacts the performance of buildings. Radio BX is made possible through the generous support of our sponsor, National Grid. So stay engaged and join the conversation each month with some of the most compelling people in our field. Hello and welcome to Radio BX. I'm your host for today's episode, Haley Mall, Senior Associate of Educational Resources here at BX. Our guest today is Pat Sappinsley, a longtime BX board member and advisor at the Urban Future Lab, a nonprofit innovation hub at the NYU Tandon School of Engineering, scaling up and commercializing the best in class climate tech startups, focused specifically on clean energy and sustainable urban infrastructure. She joins the podcast today for a conversation about her pioneering career path and her impact in the fields of architecture, venture capital, and climate tech solutions over the last three decades. This conversation is part of our Ask Me Anything series under our Women in Sustainability and Energy series. WISE was founded by the Women of BX in 2015 as an inclusive platform for people of all backgrounds and gender identities to learn from experienced women leaders, share knowledge, and advance equity in the workplace. Pat Sappinsley, welcome to Radio BX. Thank you, Haley. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, I've been a BEX booster since the days when it was green light. I've been here a long time. I am on the board here, and I love this place. You're doing great work, so thank you for having me. Of course. Well, why don't we get started first with uh, a brief introduction? Um, so if you could take a few minutes to share some insights um, as well as an introduction to yourself. Um, a little bit about your career path and how you ended up where you are today. Good, happy to do that. Um, I started out in life as an architect. Um, I had my own small firm. I loved the career. I loved the people who are architects. They're wonderful people. Um, but when my kids were born, when my second child was born, I guess that was 1993, I decided to close the office. You only have one chance to be at home with your kids, so I took it. Great. Uh, thanks for that quick intro. Uh, what got you interested initially in studying architecture? Um, I went to college at Hampshire College during its first year of existence, and it was not quite all put together and organized yet. Everything was independent study. Uh, I had signed up for a sculpture class, and we had no sculpture studio. So the teacher would just sit drinking coffee and smoking and talking about all his cool artist friends in New York, and I got really sick of it. So I went to the small library, and I read everything I could about sculpture. And in the Dewey Decimal System, the next uh, shelf was architecture. So I started reading everything I could about architecture. This was instead of going to class. I figured, you know, I'm supposed to be getting an education, so I'll sit in the library and read. And that was how I got interested in architecture. That's kind of funny uh, how the things that we think we might want to know or study, you know, ends up changing over time once you're immersed in school and can see more things out there in the world. Um, what are some of your favorite achievements that you've had when you were uh, running your own architectural firm as well as when you were more formally a practicing architect? So let's talk about what we did at our firm. It was called Sappensley Architecture. Uh, it was very small, but we did beautiful work. <laughs> um, we did a, the first sports restaurant with big screens, and we had to invent what big screens were. We used projectors 
and roll-down screens, actually, that we fastened to the wall. Um, <clears throat> it was in a space that was an old grocery store, and we turned it into a sort of a, uh, a gladiator <laughs> a venue. We made bleachers, and people could sit in the bleachers and face the screens, and there was a lot of throwing of peanuts and beer, and it was really very fun, and it was a wonderful place. It got published a lot. Uh, that, that's one of the ones I'm most proud of. Another is a townhouse that I did um, for a family where the building had been 10 units and they wanted to turn it into a single family house. Um, I am still friends with those clients. We did a wonderful, uh, it was a really interesting renovation and they were terrific clients. Um, the father was very involved. He would sit over the drawings at night and sketch on them and later when it was under construction he would come home at night and do crazy finishes on the plaster walls. He, he was an amazing, he's still an amazing guy um, and I'm very close to them. And the other people I'm very close to were people from my office in those days. Uh, one of them, Nancy Doherty, was just awarded with some great award in New Jersey from the AIA. Unfortunately I couldn't go but I do stay in close touch with her. And another one, Paul Gallagher, who did most of the drawings for sports, um, <clears throat> is Australian, lives in Australia, but while he was working for me, he had a son, so that child had a US passport, is an American citizen, and he came back to New York, and Paul kind of said to me, watch out for my son, and I have. <laughs> and I'm now friends with the kids who are Paul's grandkids. It's very, you know, the people in architecture are wonderful people. What were some of the challenges that you faced running your own firm, especially as a woman in, still to this day, I'd say, a more male-dominated field? It was very interesting being a woman in architecture in those days. You know, this was, I guess, the practice started in 1980 and went through 93. And there were a lot of contractors who weren't, uh, what's the word? They were not comfortable feeling that there was a woman looking at their work and perhaps criticizing it or telling them I want it done a different way. <clears throat> I was very careful to always say to them when I was on the site, you guys know what you're doing so much more than I do. Uh, I'm curious to understand why you did this this way. And it would start a conversation instead of just slamming them and being critical. And then during the conversation, I could introduce that I wanted it done a slightly different way. But that worked. Um, the other thing was that when I was in, was it college? Yeah, it was college. One summer, I worked for an architect. And the following summer, I built the project. Because this was a sort of a barn and silo that a family was doing in Rhode Island on the water. And I had worked on the designs in the architect's office. And then I called the owner, with whom I developed a nice relationship. I knew he was going to build it with his nephew himself. And I said, look, I've never built anything, but you can pay minimum wage. And I would love to get the experience of building. And he said, sure. So I was on the crew. And they would call me, hey, architect. They, they never used my name. <laughs> I was just, hey, architect. But it was fun. It was, you know, I learned a ton. So I actually do know how to build things. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I guess you can use that as, uh, you know, legitimation of, you know, ways to legitimize that you know a little bit, you know, maybe not all uh, into the world of contracting, but at least somewhat. I'm curious, do you think that that troping of you as an architect, how much was that attributed to just your field or in the case with the contractors was attributed to like you being a woman? Because a bit of what you, you know, describe makes me think that interesting that we as women sometimes have to tailor what we say or how we approach things especially if we're in positions of leadership and authority uh, with other men in power and so I'm curious that well it seemed like a successful strategy if you felt like you know it was because you were a woman that you had to kind of uh, adapt in that way and then also you know being called the architect that you were kind of troped so I'm just curious how you reconcile those so I think in the case, the, the earlier case in my life when I was still in college and studying architecture, that was more of a class thing, that I was being educated as an architect and they were laborers. And, he, and they didn't call me, hey honey, they called me, hey architect, which was fine. Um, and on the, <clears throat> on the job sites when I was a practicing architect, uh, that was, probably much more to do with my being a woman. But it worked out. I never had a real problem with it. <laughs> Things have changed. And I guess to uh, that end, a good segue um, is to see some of your perspective um, and observations about how the field of architecture has changed. Um, and your role as an architectural practitioner has changed over your lifetime. Maybe that's speaking more broadly about the field and kind of the things that you've noticed over, you know, over time. Yeah, well, the, the biggest thing is that we didn't give any thought to energy. We didn't give any thought to sustainability. We, the, the concept of embodied carbon was never in our brains when we were designing. And later in life, when I, when I went in, I think, 2005 or six into uh, investing in building energy efficiency, I was saying to myself, oh my god, we've been malpracticing all these years. This is crazy what we've done. And it was very thoughtless. It was the wrong thing to do, and we're correcting it now. But it's going to take some time. The other thing that has changed, of course, is that computer-aided design is here now. And when I left the field, it was nascent. None of my generation used computer-aided design. And when the kids were grown and I was thinking about whether I was going to go back to being an architect, one of the things that deterred me was that I didn't know how to do that. Um, another thing was this energy efficiency. Another was the value system that I was thrown into by being a small firm in New York and doing largely apartment renovations. I was really catering to the 1% of the 1%. And I was putting in air conditioning systems that could get their house down to 65 degrees as they stepped over homeless people in the street and it just seemed so wrong. You know, it was from so many angles. The waste of energy, uh, the waste of resources, it, it seemed very wrong to me in many ways. So I was very happy to get out. I want to go back to what you mentioned about digital tools and computer-aided design. Um, and I'm curious if you've seen the advent of all these digital tools uh, be something that is also worrisome as much as it is revolutionary? Um, like how ambivalent are you to the use of tools like an AI or other kinds of digital systems? Well, AI is just hitting the architecture market. I heard from a friend at dinner the other night that 
nobody is spending money on staff putting together a competition entry anymore. We used to slave uh, to get these competitions out the door and our, I mean, I would pay my employees or my boss would pay me. It was a very costly endeavor to participate in any of the competitions. Now, apparently, you just use the right prompts talking to, uh, you know, an AI and you, you tell it what you want it to look like, a little Jean Nouvel, a little Frank Lloyd Wright, a little this, a little that. I want ceiling heights to be this, I want views to be that. And it draws a project for you. And you can submit that as a competition entry. And then later when it's time to design it, you'll refine it. But that's crazy to me. The other thing that I found very crazy, you know, in, in the early days, I think in the Hong Kong competition, Zaha Hadid was the only one doing this, but she was doing all kinds of crazy curvy things that could not be done without computer-aided design and certainly could not be built. A, could not be drawn, and B, could not be built without computer-aided design. Uh, this Frank Gehry building right here is a case in point. It could never have been done before computer-aided design. So it has changed, the computer-aided design has changed the face of architecture. AI will change the face of architecture in ways we don't understand yet, but I'm hoping <laughs> that attention to passive house and sustainability and embodied carbon will change architecture even more. Well, now I want to transition a bit to talk a bit about your career path past architecture and what initially sparked your interest in transitioning away from running an architectural practice to venture capital and what was really going on in your life and the world in that time when um, you ended up working in VCs. Yeah, it was an interesting moment in time. Um, I had been at home with the kids for 10 years and decided now it was time to go back to work. As I mentioned, because I didn't know CAD, architecture wasn't gonna be the thing and because I, I was questioning the values. In the meantime, I think the Al Gore movie had come out that year or the year before. I was vice chair of a not-for-profit that dealt with the environment, you know, as an activity while the kids were in school. I'd gotten very interested reading about uh, renewable energy. Uh, I'd gotten very interested in how I could become part of it. So I attended lectures. You know, in those days, we're talking like approximately 2003 to 2005, there were no degree granting institutions in climate change. There were a few people who were speaking up, but it was really hard to get that knowledge other than, you know, there weren't books written yet other than going on the internet, which was new. <laughs> and I did study a lot on the internet, but I was able to go to the, to the occasional lecture. So in addition to going to lectures at Columbia, I was able to access the library. I was also able to attend uh, the wind conferences or solar conferences that came through the city. They were very small and they were well-priced. And I did a lot of networking and met a lot of people. And through that process, through a friend of a friend, I met Richard Kaufman, who later became the energy czar for the state. But at that time, Richard was pulling together uh, one of the earliest venture capital funds that was investing in renewables. And he understood, because he's a very smart guy, uh, that you can produce gorgeous clean electrons and they're usually sent to buildings and buildings will waste them. 
So he knew that he needed an architect, and after an interview process, he hired me. And that was very exciting. It was a steep learning curve. And you know, by the way, especially for women, especially for women of a certain age, I was 52. I was learning a new thing. It was terrifying. And there was always that little voice in my head that said, what are you doing? You know nothing about finance. And I would tell that little voice to shut up. And I would go to work every day. And I did have value. You know, I remember a time when I was sitting with a bunch of um, business school young people around me who were crunching numbers. We were looking at a window technology. And I picked up the phone and called a curtain wall consultant and talked to them all about it. And then I told my gang. And they kind of said, what's a curtain wall consultant? And I thought, yeah, I do have value here, right? So. Uh, you have to be careful not to prejudge yourself, um, especially as a woman. I also remember that I was very silent at the conference room tables there. I think there were three women among 62 employees. And between the fact that I didn't have a business degree, and I was a woman, and I was older, and I was starting a new career, all of those things caused me to kind of clam up at the conference table. So I would advise people not to do that. You know, your, your thoughts are valuable. And an intelligent person has something to contribute no matter what. So that's sort of my only regret. <laughs> I think there's something to be said, though, most definitely about uh, ageism in our society and the way that we judge older people learning new things, you know, as small as your grandparents, like learning how to use an iPhone, you know, to uh, learning new skills and even career transitioning at a later point in your life. And I'm hopeful that we are evolving into a society that, you know, there's so much possibilities out there that anyone can drop and do anything different at different points in their life. But um, it's interesting that you share your experience because I, st I still think that people often judge those as they get older in life and, and are you know new um, in whatever field they're in. I think that we still need to see that there is value in just li lived experience as well, as much as, of course, your technical experience and your training experience you have in a particular industry. Um, and you said all of those you know confluence of factors um, made you feel like you couldn't contribute. Um, did you feel over time that you were able to gain more confidence in yourself, or what did you do um, to help you gain that confidence while working there? It was just the passage of time as I learned more things. And you know, you begin to think of yourself, instead of as an old husband, you think of yourself as a kind of a walking library of experiences and a walking Rolodex of relationships and networks. And that stuff is very valuable to those young people who haven't had a chance to do that yet. Um, so that has been extremely helpful, and as long as I recognize that in myself, I can boost my confidence. And now I'm even older. <laughs> but you brought a lot of value. When you were working at Good Energies, you know, you were focusing on an energy efficiency and investment in that, which, as you said, was sort of nascent at the time, and we're trying to probably grow, uh, you know, investment in that. And as an architect, definitely had a lot of experience about building science and about these projects and, and values um, that I'm sure was very useful. I'm curious, at the time that you were working at Good Energies, um, what were the kinds of barriers that you saw in the market that were facing energy efficiency? Um, and what have you seen over time now has been the primary barriers? Because I think now, especially working here at BX, 
it seems that energy efficiency goes hand in hand um, with any talk about decarbonization in our buildings and any talk about uh, the imprint that or the footprint that buildings have on our planet and on our carbon emissions. So I'm curious what you've seen. Is it going from more of a nascent topic uh, to something that seems very widely accepted? Yeah, well, we all know that the electron you never use is the cheapest electron there is. Um, but it's kind of hard to convince building owners to see it that way. What they see is that they're paying, I don't know, X hundred dollars a square foot for their labor, X hundred dollars a square foot for their rent, and pennies a square foot for energy. So if you tell them that they can save some of those pennies, they say, I don't have time for this. My staff doesn't have time for this. It's going to cost me more in staff time than what I'm going to save. So they're very quick to uh, poo-poo the energy savings. I think what, what is happening now and what has to happen more is that we need more local policies to provide a market pull. And that's what's happening with Local on 97. That's what's going to change the market. It's very hard to convince people in the business world that they want to save money on their energy. Very hard. It depends. Certain businesses are so energy dependent that that's not the case. But an office building isn't. Uh, maybe a hospital is. You know, it, it, it just depends. In industry, it's often a big part of their cost. So it's easier to get them to focus on energy efficiency. But for the building owners in Manhattan, it's been a real struggle. Mm. And you feel that there's uh, still a disincentive or a lack of motivation to you know prioritize energy um, efficiency even when it can be very minimal work and I feel as though a lot of buildings especially in New York are you know of an older vintage and are um, often very energy inefficient and have you know a low energy grade could really benefit actually from and see a lot of emission savings just from doing energy efficiency work so is it harder to make that kind of case so it depends if it's something really simple the low hanging fruit is LEDs and lighting controls and HVAC controls you don't have to change out the equipment the HVAC equipment you just change the little electronic box that's governing it um, and LEDs, you have your normal lighting guys going around changing lamps on a regular basis, so you just give them a new kind of lamp. It doesn't cost anything, really. So th those have gone very well. Um, it's, it's convincing people to eliminate fossil fuels, which means replacing the equipment in the basement. It's getting people to insulate their buildings, which is construction work. Uh, those kinds of things are a much harder sell. But as I say, Local Law 97 will help. Absolutely. I think you know the balance of carrot and stick always seems to be a fine line for policymakers, but seems to have great importance to emphasize both um, and implement both um, in different capacities. Um, I'm curious, during all of this, when you're working in venture capital, how prevalent was concepts of sustainable design and net zero buildings, you know, as these types of terms or uh, these types of concepts caught on, you know, maybe in our culture, but also in uh, business value or maybe investor importance, did it, did things change? Um, do you feel like the conversation now feels that, you know, building owners want to prioritize this? Um, there is now, as I mentioned, policy pulling the market. 
So that has made a big difference. In the old days, it was the Rocky Mountain Institute and New Buildings Institute and some of the national labs that were trying to get the word out, and of course, Art Rosenfeld in California and the appliance uh, standards. There were some lone voices that were pretty loud, and uh, it, it was a struggle to get people to pay attention to those. Now, with carrot and stick policies, um, there's a lot more attention being paid, there's a lot more awareness. You know, in spite of the fact that people say we aren't getting out the word, and yes, we all have to do better on that, we have, we have turned the tide a bit. So there's also with the, what's going on in the American economy right now is that there is not investor confidence in some of the areas that have been impacted by inflation. There is investor confidence in investments in climate because of the IRA and the CHIPS Act. So if the US government is going to actually be a co-investor with them, then they're willing to go in. So we're seeing a lot of new VCs popping up. We're seeing giant amounts of investment. Um, we'll talk about the Urban Future Lab in a minute, but when I was first there, I think eight or nine years ago, you know, a company would make a deal with a VC for a $5 million raise, and that was a big deal to us. The most recent raise at our lab was $225 million to Nine Dot Energy. That's incredible. And that has happened largely in the last two years. A lot of that, I think, if I remember correctly, we hit the $1 billion mark of funds raised by the companies about three years ago. Today, our companies have raised 2.5 billion. That happened in the last two and a half years, that jump. So a lot of it has to do with policy. Absolutely, you've definitely touched upon some of the important innovations or, or I guess the important factors for you know the prioritization of energy efficiency. Um, and because you tar started talking about the Urban Future Lab, I'm curious as you did start to transition um, to incubating, scaling climate solutions at UFL, what skills or lessons did you take with you from your time in VC? Did you feel that it aided you in particular ways and gave you particular capacities and how it maybe inspired you to work um, in scaling climate tech? Um, I brought with me from the venture capital world a kind of a methodology for vetting companies in the first place, understanding of how much of a SWOT analysis had to do with uh, the founders themselves, uh, as well as the technology, as well as the market. You know, we knew what, I knew what to look for, where until I got there, I'm not sure that was as well understood. So one of the reasons we did so well was that we chose companies very well. Um, that was one skill I brought from VC. Um, another was just understanding the difference between a technology in search of a business and a real business. Very often there are engineers and scientists who will come up with 
something that they think is terrific that there is absolutely no demand for. Um, I can't think of one off the top of my head right now. If I do, I'll, I'll shout it out. But uh, it's very important that there's a market. <laughs> Nothing's going to succeed if it doesn't have a market. Um, so ha bringing that point of view across the city to Brooklyn was important. Um, and then, of course, all the contacts are very important. Many of these young companies have an issue and don't know where to turn. And I was very often able to pick up the phone and call someone I had worked with in the past during the VC years and say, here's what this company needs and you know how to do that. Can you talk to them? Um, and also introductions to other VCs that we had co-invested with. Uh, and I was a trusted partner by then. So if the company approached the VC on their own, no one would have opened the email. If it came from me, they, they were opening it. So I don't know, this sounds brash, but it's, it's the truth. Uh, having, having a network and being trusted in your network is extremely important to helping these companies. Um, let's see. I think having founders who are engineers can be a problem because they have less of this business acumen. So it's important to try to pair them up with people who do have the business acumen. And that was something that was very helpful. Uh, there are very often founder issues, which you can kind of figure out in the first interview. When you have co-founders coming and pitching you, you need to look at their dynamic. How well do they get along? Um, and if, if you see any hint of the fact that they don't get along, it, don't accept them into the incubator. It's really, it's always, it's the hardest problem to solve is when founders don't get along. And it's, in my experience, um, the biggest cause of failures in these companies. So those, those kinds of things you kind of bring with you from, from VC to incubation. You mentioned that you know a technology in search of a business versus you know having demand that's there. Do you find that there are a lot of great technologies out there that that should and we should like you know uh, catalyze uh, creating demand for them, or uh, it really has to be that beautiful marriage of uh, having demand and a need there in the market as well as the technology that can fulfill that niche because I think that there's so many nuances and new emergent problems with our climate crisis and it makes me think that uh, we need to constantly keep pace with all of those particular nuances and issues and so I'm curious if you feel that there needs to be more, maybe perhaps um, uh, maybe government help or, or of creating markets um, or if it really needs to just be uh, that marriage as you said of the right business, uh, sorry, the right tech and the right demand? Yeah, well, um, policy will increase that demand. I'm not sure any of us individually can increase that demand. Um, and also, innovation matures, innovation changes, situations change. For instance, if 20 years ago there was a great technology for uh, keeping forest fires from being caused by downed power lines that had no market 20 years ago. Now everyone's screaming for it. So some of these technologies just have to wait until the time is ripe. 
and there's not much we can do about that. Uh, in a worsening climate, there'll be more and more uh, solutions that are needed, so solutions that have been sitting in the back drawer might become very valuable. That certainly happened with geothermal drilling. Uh, years ago, people would say, we're never gonna be able to harness the geothermal assets, and I'm talking about the deep geothermal assets, the ones that can create electricity, not just ground source heat pumps. Um, there were no drilling technologies. Now there are drilling technologies, which ironically have come from gas and oil, um, but the time has come for geothermal. It could, it could be a big part of the solution. So some of these things are just kind of time dependent. But that makes you know sense that as we become more aware of a critical problem, you know people will rise up to try to find solutions for them. Um, at the last company I worked for, uh, we were a blue tech company focused on microplastic removal, and often a barrier we had from governments wanting to buy our technology or, or you know pilot our technology or wastewater treatment plants was often no regulatory pull or or like you said, not enough of a uh, a demand, you know, to be doing water quality testing and determining the safe levels of microplastics in our drinking water and wastewater. So I just, I resonate with what you said, and that's very important um, to point out. 88% of our startups are still up and running, as opposed to closer to a 90% failure rate for startups in America. So we, we vetted them very well, and then we gave them a lot of help. What do you think then was the most critical component of that success rate? And what was unique about UFL to be able to uh, achieve such an uh, impressive success rate? What about your help really you think uh, achieved just, that? It's not just, not just my help, it's the team and also it's the environment. If you're sitting in your garage fiddling with some gadget, you cannot turn to the person next to you and say, what am I doing wrong here? Do you know what this is about? But in the lab, they could, and they could come to us. And you know, it was a team, by the time I left, it was 17 people. Um, they could come to any of us and say, what do I do about this? And we would point them in the right direction. So they got help that they never could have had access to if they were working outside of the incubator. So that was huge. And again, uh, vetting them correctly in the first place was huge. Mm. I'm sure all of the resources at NYU, you know, whether it be equipment and space, uh, professors, other technical knowledge that they can learn through libraries and other literature, I'm sure all of that really enabled their success. Um, in the realm of climate tech startups, what issues did you see come through the incubator that tended to dominate? Or maybe you could say largely just about uh, the startup uh, industry? Um, what ones have you seen emerge within different climate issues? And what climate issues do you feel actually need more technology, need more solutions uh, attributed towards them? Yeah, we actually have all the solutions we need if we could just deploy them. So the ability to scale is a big issue. And that means first-of-a-kind funding. It means government funding. Um, that's, that's a big one. The other big one is we must focus on the elimination of fossil fuels. I mean, it seems so simple, but it's not simple at all. Uh, to replace fossil fuels with sources of heat and energy that are reliable, not intermittent, inexpensive, uh, readily available, 
that's hard to do. And, and we're seeing now, I think the backlog of renewable energy projects for electrical generation is as large as the amount of electricity that's being generated by all methods right now in the US. So that backlog, I think that's right. I have to look it up sometimes. I mix these things up. But I believe the, the interconnection and transmission bottleneck is really harming us. So we've got to do something about that. And, and a lot of that is legislative. A lot of that is NIMBY. A lot of that is state by state. You know, why would you run your power lines through my state unless you're giving me something? What are you giving me? Um, it's, it's a real mess. Once we lick the transmission problem, we're going to be in much better shape. But that's going to take time. Your answer sort of touches upon this, you know, what importance we weigh on technology and innovations in uh, the market um, with policy, good global governance. And so with that issue of interconnectivity, I feel as though being exemplary of that, of a balance of, of you know, we need legislation, we need, uh, you know, uh, maybe new technologies. Um, do you feel that, how do you see uh, the weight or, or the emphasis on balancing the importance of technological innovation with also policy and good global governance? We need all of that. Um, what's happening that I think is really interesting is that innovation is moving faster than anyone realizes. Um, you know, from the time the Wright brothers took off in 1906 until the time we landed on the moon was 60 years. That seems really fast. But if that were happening now, it would be from the Wright brothers to the moon in five years. It's crazy what's going on now. Um, and that's not only for innovation and technology, it's also for price reduction. I've had a lot of people say to me, oh, you know, hydrogen is never going to be a proper fuel because it's so expensive. Well, hello. <laughs> Have you seen how solar went down the cost curve? Wind went down the cost curve? LEDs went down the cost curve? It's just a matter of innovation and deployment, government dollars. You can't look backwards for these things. The speed of innovation is absolutely shocking, and it's helping us a lot in this industry. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully, together with innovation in policy keeping in stride with innovation, we'll continue to have the necessary support for that innovation to ensure that it scales, to ensure that it's also done equitably, and to ensure that it you know meets all the challenges that we have. Um, I want to transition a little bit and just kind of take a step back because we are talking about your career and about where you've gone and all of the things that you've accomplished in your really illustrious uh, career. Um, so I'm curious, um, as you look out over this time uh, from everything we've discussed so far, and now you're entering the next phase of your life, what are some of the professional achievements that have meant the most to you? Um, I guess the, the milestones that our companies have achieved and the growth of uh, innovation support across the country and around the world, um, I think we, we influenced both of, the, both of those things a lot. The, um, 
I think I mentioned that the companies have now raised 2.5 billion uh, and they have an 88% success rate. They've hired 4,000 people or more. Uh, they've avoided tons of carbon and it's very hard for us to measure that, but that's the next thing I had on the list before I left and uh, people who are still there are gonna work on that. Um, I also think the, the rise of young people and their interest in this sector is really wonderful. Certainly, we worked on that. Um, you know, I did mention that when I was studying this in 2003 to 5, there were no real courses. Now there are graduate programs, undergraduate programs, all kinds of courses, all kinds of kids graduating with an interest in this. When I speak at events now, I look out at the audience and it's not people my age. It's very young people. So I'm, I'm really delighted that so many of them are coming into this field. We need everyone to be in this field. I think it's so important to, you know, see the new workforce generation that is that you've helped develop. And I think people in your generation have paved the way for people in my generation to feel that there's actual momentum and hope and that there's actual uh, work still left to be done that actually could be accomplished and feels feasible. And I think that that's very exciting to see. And I'm sure that level of optimism must be exciting for you to see that the, you know, impact that you've had in your generation that has worked in climate or in clean investment um, has imparted, you know, a level of optimism and a real feeling of this work can be done. Um, and I'm curious, because you were talking about young people and how impressed you are with how many people are coming into the climate sustainability, clean energy field, if you will, uh, et cetera. What advice would you give to emerging professionals um, interested in breaking into either architecture, clean investment, um, clean energy? I think any talent you have can be put to good use in this industry. You know, if you're a lawyer and you're, you should be working on cases that have to do with the environment. Uh, it's interesting because I think it's a, there's a wonderful selfishness here which is that if you're working on a case for a Fortune 500 company to have made 500 million more than they did, and oh, it's so sad that, the, that they're not able to do that and you have to help them, you don't go home at night and feel really great about that. If you've helped the climate situation, you go home every night feeling really great about the work you've done. So I think there's a wonderful, selfish feedback loop that makes you feel really good about the work you do and enjoy the work you do. And it doesn't matter if you're a banker or a lawyer or even a doctor or a scientist, there, are, there is a place for you in climate. There's research to be done. There's, there's so much work to be done. Recently, we had um, someone on our sustainability panel for a recent WISE panel, Justine Klein, who said that um, every job is a climate job. Yeah. And I think that is something that I've taken with me. And that is the kind of messaging that we need uh, to make sure that it feels like a collective effort and we don't have silos. So I'm glad that you're, you're mentioning that. Well, we're kind of at the end of our time. So I want to know if there's any final thoughts or words or other things that you'd want to share with our audience, um, but you know, that you haven't already contributed in this good conversation we've had. <laughs> 
no, just join us. We need everyone. And, you know, career changes are fun. I've done it three times now, more, I think. <laughs> I was an architect. I, I skipped over the parts after the VC firm closed, where I went to the Harvard Wies and helped them to scale up interesting biomimetic technologies. I had a little lighting company. Uh, I had my own consulting company helping startups, uh, and then went to, to UFL. Don't be afraid to switch careers to try something new. It's no fun to be in the same job for 50 years. <laughs> it's really fun and really exciting. And the challenge is daunting. You know, you cannot listen to that little voice in your head that says, uh, I can't do it. Yes, you can do it. Just apply yourself and study and you'll get there. So my, my parting thoughts are just that. Come join us and don't worry about whether you'll be successful or not. Just do it. Well, great words to end on. Pat, thank you so much for your time today and for joining us at BX Radio. Thank you. Thank you, Haley. It's my pleasure. Take care.